Welcome to the world of thoroughbred racing on the Equisport Radio Network. Alidar's got a lead. Alidar put ahead in front, right in the middle of the stretch. It's Alidar and Affirm battling back along the inside. We'll test these two to the wire. Affirmed under a left-hand whip. Alidar on the outside driving. Affirmed and Alidar heads apart. Affirm's got a nose in front as he come on to the wire. Join our host, Les Salzman, and his team as they go behind the scene to cover the inside stories and history of the international racing scene. And down the stretch they come. On the outside, it's Sunday Silence. Easy goer with Pat Day. Back to challenge. Heads apart. Easy goer on the inside with a slight lead. On the outside, Sunday Silence. The rest of them far back. Here's the finish of the Preakness. Sunday Silence and Easy goer. Photo finish. Noses apart. Get ready for some great interviews and fast-paced action. She's starting to pick them off, those in Yanta going to hook to the outside. Meanwhile, it's Colonel John, Summerbird in the red cap. And Zinyata's come to the outside. Zinyata coming, flying on the grandstand side. Gio Ponti on the inside. Summerbird is right there. This is unbelievable. Zinyata, what a performance. One will never And now, your host. I've seen that road before It always leads me Lead me to your door Hi, this is Les Salzman on the Equisport Radio Network and with me today, a very special guest, a guy that I've known for 35 years. Uh, Tony Black, one of the one of the constants in racing. Tony uh, started racing uh, as a rider uh, in June of 1970. He uh, just recently graduated high school. And the reason, Tony, welcome to the show. The reason I played that song was that was the number one song on June 15th, 1970. That, that was the day that you won your first race. But did you think it would be such a long and winding road when you started? Boy, what an appropriate song. You know, I think back to that air, and you think back to how great racing is. And I never thought it would be such a long and winding road. Because when you think back to those years, if a rider lasted 20 years, that was a total career. In fact, if any athlete in any sports lasts 20 years, that's, that's a phenomenal amount of years. That's the average uh, most athletes last, last is a jockey and some other uh, athletic professions. But you know what's even more appropriate than June 15th, 1970, my first win? That was my first race. Didn't go to graduation that day because I couldn't do both, ride and go to graduation. But the horse that I rode uh, won, and his name was... Stand by me. And it just hit me not too many years ago that to last this long in any business, you know, whether it's an athlete or a businessman or whatever, you have to have a lot of people stand by you. And I thought, what an appropriate name for my first winner, Stand By Me, because it took a lot of people to stand by me to let me get to over 34,000 mounts and over 5,200 wins. Don't you think so, Les? You know, it is very, very appropriate, and even more so in your case, Tony, because having known you for all these years, you're all about loyalty and family. And so if, they're, if they could put a T-shirt together, a Tony Black T-shirt, it probably would say, Stand By Me. Uh, and that goes both ways. You know, when, when we first met, you were riding literally 24-7. You were at one racetrack here and the next racetrack that, and, but you were very loyal to the trainers that put you on your horses. And that, that always impressed me. Yeah. You, you know what? You, you, you develop a relationship with trainers and of course you can't hit it off with everybody. And, and so much of the time winners dictate how long you're going to last in that outfit. But I was very fortunate to have trainers that I rode for that I would have a relationship, business and personal, that the, they would stick with me. 
and uh, and of course I would stick with them. And and this is a you know highly competitive uh, business where a lot of times you have to move around. And in those days when I first started, well, you can attest to this. You you could ride seven days a week if you weren't riding six days someplace and a night here or there. I can remember. In fact, I can remember back to the uh, it was um, first time I got married, right? I rode uh, right after the civil ceremony in front of a, you know, a, a judge uh, that married us. I rode eight that day at Keystone Racetrack and then went that night to the Meadowlands and rode uh, another uh, eight races. And I'm thinking, I rode 16 races that day and night. But that's the way the game was. And now you see racetracks, you know, they... There's a little less racing at some of the racetracks, but if a judge wants to stay active, you know, in this uh, tri-state area of Pennsylvania, Jersey, uh, Delaware, uh, you can ride a lot of days and a night at Penn National and, uh, you know, be very active. But it was a lot easier when I started out riding to ride 34,000 races than what it's going to be for a kid that starts out now. Because, of course, look, if we look at the dates and everything, how racing has evolved. I mean, there, there's certain times of the year that we only race three or three days at parks. And some other parts of the year, we race four days a week. You know, I can remember where we raced six days a week, and, you, and it was before Sunday racing. You were just glad to have Sunday off where maybe you didn't have to work that morning. And you could take the whole day off, or if you had to work that morning, you could take the afternoon although, off. Although knowing you, even with today's schedule, you'd be in the car yeah. driving to Mexico to ride a race. <laughs> I mean, you, you're just that type of guy. Matter of fact, let's go back to you know a time, again, many years ago, when you were riding in 1993 in July, okay, and from noon on july 30th to about three or four o'clock on the 31st you won 10 consecutive races yeah exciting now, that, time that's you. that's pretty bizarre right yeah you know what it was I, I was riding at keystone i guess it was keystone it wasn't philadelphia park at the time it was philadelphia was, park by then yeah they had already changed the philadelphia park and then i was riding atlantic city at night and that was a, a fun time, you know. But I, I rode a, a um, it was nine consecutive winners. That's what it was last nine consecutive. Okay. Because uh, it was the record was set nine consecutive winners over a three day period by um, I can't think of the rider's name, but it was in 1931. And here we are in 1990. What was it? 93. And I rode yep. two winners that that afternoon at. Uh, Philadelphia Park, went to Atlantic City that night, rode three horses, and all three of them won. They didn't have racing the next day at Philadelphia Park, so then the next night I went back to Atlantic City, and I was on four horses. So I had already won five consecutive in the one day. And uh, I'm on four horses, and uh, I ride the first one, it wins. The second one, it wins. That made me have six consecutive. The third one won, and the announcer, uh, Larry Letterman, called me. He said, hey, Tom, if you win this next race, you're either going to set or tie a record that's been uh, nine, that'll be nine consecutive winners. I said, no kidding, Larry. I says, I had no idea that was a record. So, of course, the next one, I'm coming down the stretch, and I'll never forget Steve Kapanis goes past me, opens up the neck, and you talk about the power of positive thinking. I didn't want to, no way do I want to get beat. Don't you know this horse that I was on came back and beat him a nose on the money, and I won nine consecutive. And then now, who, who trained that horse that you won with? Um, I think was it JJ Gracie that trained. Uh, it was JJ. It yes, was actually JJ. JJ. Yeah, and I, I think, think Steve I was, was on mine. Uh, oh, yeah. But what? but that that was usually the case because whenever I saw you coming to Atlantic City, you ruined my night. You, you know, you're my guy, but you ruined my night. You know, I could be riding Rosemary Holmeister, Steve, anybody, Juan Yumana. Tony Black shows up in Atlantic City. I know I'm running for second place money. You, and you know what? That, that was an ideal track for me because I had the reputation of being a, a front end speed rider, which, you know, I don't know if that was so true. But uh, that was usually a track that 
at many a night or day, whenever we raced there, had a slight speed bias. And, you know, it was a good racetrack. It brought back a lot of memories, you mentioning that nine consecutive. But uh, it, it's, it was a great racetrack to ride at. And you know what? One of the best turf courses anybody could have ever ridden on in any part of their career was at Atlantic City. Their turf course was phenomenal. No, that, that was like a green carpet. Yeah, beautiful turf course. Now, you, you, know, you, you started, you know, you're from New Jersey, right? Right. And, and you, can, you come from kind of an unusual racing family. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when I was a little kid, I was uh, born in, in Mount Holly, New Jersey, and my uncle had a farm in Marlton, New Jersey. To the age of nine, I lived on my uncle's farm with my parents because my dad was farm manager and had vans. In fact, that it cracks me up because every once in a while I see the van, Black Horse Transportation. My dad was Black Horse Transportation a real, originally. But anyway, my uncle rode for uh, just about 20 years. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, Sam Bomitas. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame. In fact, I just was up to the Hall of Fame uh, back last August to accept the induction award for my Well, Juliet. your girl got in, right? Yeah, my Juliet. And I took my son, my little boy. I've got, you know, four children, 38, 37, 14, and 11. I took my 11-year-old with me, and I, I showed him Uncle Sam's uh, Hall of Fame plaque. And uh, he was so impressed, you know, with Saratoga. And we spent three days at Saratoga. It's a, what a beautiful facility and what a great place to take someone and introduce them to racing, Saratoga. But that was a thrill just to be asked to accept the uh, Hall of Fame induction plaque uh, for my Juliet, who was really uh, a, a privilege and a great mare to ride. In fact, one of her great accomplishments was when I rode her in the Vosburg against the boys, and uh, she beat the horse that had won the Derby in Belmont that year, Bolt Forbes. And I'll never forget walking into the gate. Cordero looked over at me, and he said, just keep them straight leaving here, kid. You can't beat me. <laughs> well, of course, I... I loved uh, riding my Juliet because she was strictly speed and would do whatever you wanted her to do, relax, stalking a horse or go to the lead. But anyway, we played our little game going down the backside when he wanted to stay on the inside. I made him come around. When he came around, I kind of parked him a little bit and coming to the head of the stretch, I left him out there, dropped in, opened up a couple lanes and won the race. He claimed foul against me. They took him down because he bothered a horse named It's Freezing leaving the gate, and they placed him third. And, of course, they never took me down, and I wound up winning the Vosburg. Uh, and that made uh, that, well, she won the Vosburg, and that probably made her the Eclipse Award-winning sprinter of 1976, was it, or seven? Yep. A lot of years. A lot of years. It, it, a, a lot of years. And, you know, as you're talking about that, it, it made me think. When I first knew you, I, I said, Tony Black, he's really strong down the lane. You know, he's good out of the gate. And then as time has gone by, I realized something. And don't take this the wrong way because, you know, I very rarely give anybody a compliment. But you're a pretty smart rider. Okay. And you've won over 5,000 races. You've got to have, have something, some sort of noodle there. But what I realized was that you can assess a race in action as just about as well as anybody I've seen. Uh, you can, you're, you're, you're in a spot, and you can figure out where the next spot is. Well, you, try to know, you, you always have to try to know uh, anytime you, you ride, and you, you know a lot of times you have familiarity with other horses in the race. You, you always want to know who your competition is. And you always want to have some kind of handle on how that jock rides and how that horse runs. You know, you can't overthink it, but you do have to be aware of what your competition is, what their strengths are a lot of times and what their weaknesses are. But you can't over-strategize. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that you learn to develop, you know how they tell, uh, tell young kids, oh, you got to you know, develop hands on a horse. You have to learn how to communicate with them. You have to learn how to relax and all that. You know what else you have to learn? How to accept the sensation and the feel of how the race is setting up around you, behind you or in front of you. There's a sensation that you get. It's a feel for what you get. And a lot of times, 
when you go against that natural feel of how a race is setting up and you're going to stick to a strategy and I'm taking this horse and I'm going to lay second or third. I'm not going to the let me go to the lead. And you go against that sensation and you, you uh, actually try to force the horse to go against that sensation. A lot of times you take away his strength and, and, and the best part of his uh, race away from him. So a lot of the times it's go with the flow. Talk about that sensation, because one of the other things that people may not recognize is that you've had huge success with fillies. And I think yeah. with fillies, more, even more so than with colts, you have to feel that sensation, don't you? Absolutely. I said to myself one day, I said, the only fillies I haven't had a lot of success with are the ones that I married. But <laughs> the, ones that I wrote, the ones that I wrote, I had a tremendous amount of success with. Some of the first stakes I've won and some of the first best horses I sat on, you know, like my Juliet uh, Eclipse Award winner, Candy Claire Eclipse Award two-year-old champion, and uh, horses that didn't get maybe all the recognition, but they were tremendous racehorses, horses that won stakes like Becky Yu, uh, um, uh, horses like Danny Dotsy, the J.R. Calendrain, you know, real true fast fillies or competitive fillies. They didn't necessarily have to be fast, but they had to be cooperative, competitive. You know, if they had speed, great, but if they knew how to relax, that was even a greater asset. If you could take that speed and moderate it, make them lay in a strategic position. But I have had a lot of success with fillies. And, you know, you're not the first guy that said that. Someone brought that to my attention many, many years ago. They said, you know, when I, it was, you know, some, uh, accomplished trainers that had noticed that and they said when i have a billy we're going to make sure we try to get you on on uh on our because it seems like you're really getting a lot of run out of phillies and i thought maybe there is something to this but you know what else i, I learned too when it comes to racehorses especially phillies uh sometimes and i learned this from a few girls that i rode with uh, to be honest, you know, some of the girl riders were very accomplished, and they had a different way of doing it. It wasn't that macho man, let me grab him, take a hold of him, and I'll show this uh, horse where I want him to go, and I'll I'll manhandle him and muscle him. No. A lot of the girls, you know what? It was a, light, uh, a kinder, lighter, gentler touch, you know, where you... You, you try to coerce them into doing what you want them to do without manhandling them. And fillies, a lot of fillies respond well to that. But I learned that riding with some of the girls that I rode with. Well, in, 80 and, in the 80s and 90s at Philadelphia Park, you had a, a tremendous female riding colony. Oh, she you, know, you had some real good, good riders. Yeah. yeah, you know, and, and a lot of the girl riders that came there, I mean, they did real well. And I mean, there was... Uh, names uh, and list of girl riders that were there that you wind up watching them and you saw them get maybe at times more run out of the horse you were riding after they started riding them and you started saying, wait a minute, what's she doing different than me? And a lot of it was because they had that kinder, gentler touch with that particular horse. But fillies really respond well to that style of riding. Yeah, over the years, I, I, I agree with you. And I think it take. although I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a woman rider today rides differently than she did in 1985. You know, you, you could really be right, because in 1985, they, um, they were just, well, in, and in, you know, in the early stages when they were just being introduced into the sport, like Barbara Jo Rubin, uh, Barbara Adder, uh way the names escape me at times, but, um, you know, I wrote, you know, I was saying Sheila McKenna, Rochelle Lee, uh, Linda, uh, Wendy Lee Weber, and they had a different way maybe of riding then and into today because a lot of times they were getting on horses that weren't always the, uh, the uh, best mount in the race because they were exactly. a lot to overcome. Yeah, you know, they were just like getting thrown a bone, and sometimes it was a horse that nobody else was getting any run out of. Oh, we'll put her on them. It's Jock's Mountain, you know. Let her ride them, and and uh, you know they 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 didn't copy the man style. They had their own style, and then you know as the game becomes more physical, and you get riders that 
think that being more physical is the way to be. You know, of course, every rider has to be fit. There's a tremendous amount of fitness for the serious rider. Tremendous amount of fitness. But maybe girls have uh, started at times because they're getting on better horses and more powerful horses. Maybe they have evolved a little bit to where they are taking uh, and strength over touch, over the gentler touch at times. But uh, a lot of the girl riders are very accomplished, and you really got to give them a lot of credit in this business, you know, all that they had to overcome. Cause it, really, it was tough on the backside for them. You're right. Absolutely, absolutely. It was, it was uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. They, were, they just weren't looked up upon. You know, they were looked as, oh, it's a girl rider. This is a fad. It will pass. I can remember when they first came around where they wanted to, the, the male riders, I believe it was at Churchill, they were going to not ride that day if they let one of the girls ride. might have been Barbara Jo Rubin or one of those girls that first uh, came around. Um, it, but, I think it may have been her or uh, Donna Barton, one or the other. Uh, yeah. Not Donna Barton. Uh, but anyhow, I, I want to ask you a question. You've, you've been riding for 50 years. How do you keep fit? You know what? I've been fit since I was a little kid in high school. The only thing that got me out of high school was between my father putting a foot up my ass that wouldn't allow me to quit and my wrestling coach. He says, if you wrestle tone, also, you know, my, my freshman, sophomore, junior, my senior year, I wanted to quit school. He says, tone, come back to school. He says, all you got to do is wrestle the last year of high school, you will graduate. He says, and this is what he made a deal with the school. They said, let Tony come to school at 10 o'clock. He can gallop horses at Garden State and at Liberty Bell at the time. There was two tracks in this area. Until 9 o'clock, and then he'll be in school. His first class is at 10 o'clock. So, and he will go out for wrestling. He'll wrestle us last year. I was district champ, regional, you know, and it was a great sport i loved it but i also wanted to be a jockey so my wrestling coach made that deal i came back to school i've been fit you know of course uh being a wrestler it, it played real well into being a jockey it taught you physical fitness and weight control because i wrestled even at uh 98 pounds in my senior year and that was a little tougher because i wasn't a natural 98 pounder by my senior year even though when you first started riding those years, you had to do 105 pounds uh, as a bug boy in your first year of your riding career. And, and then that you had to weigh 101 to 102 to do 105. But uh, wrestling and fitness, all I learned from that was it's really healthy and it's great to be fit. And I carried that throughout my career and into today. You know, and I've tried to take that message and pass it on to my kids. I got three boys that stay tremendous fitness and good athletes. So maybe I've passed that along the way to them. And, and, and you're, you're very close with your kids. Yeah. I've got a, one that just turned 38, one that just turned 36. And, uh, you know, they're, they're both successful. I got to give them credit. They both had more academically than I did. One graduated from the Indiana, University of Indiana, and the other one got his associates from Quinnipiac. Me, I was lucky, like I said, if it wasn't for wrestling, I probably wouldn't have got out of high school. But, and then I got an 11-year-old that he plays soccer, basketball, baseball, any sport out there, and academically he's an A student, A, B student. So maybe they, uh, they followed in my footsteps in the physical athletic department, but uh, they, they far passed me in the academic uh, department yeah, but you taught them a very good work ethic, I'm sure. You know, because yeah. you, you even to this day, are hard work. How many horses did you get on today? I got on four this morning. It was nice morning. I get on some horses that I really, you know, like. And my son bred a little horse that's a three-year-old that we're gonna, we've run a few times. But she, she might be all right. I get on. He doesn't have anything to do with the racetrack, but him and his mother breed a horse here and there. Then I go to Richie. I'm at Richie Vega's barn, and I get on one horse. I really like her name's Collegeville Girl. I got on her since she's been a two-year-old, and she's won a few races in New York. And I got on a couple other horses for Richie. And it's nice because I can go in there, and I can get on him at my own pace, do what he says. It keeps me fit. He, he enjoys watching me get on his horses. He's got 40, but he comes out and watches what I do on his horses, and he's just as glad to have me under the barn, Richie Vega. 
But uh, I like getting on three, four, well, five. You, you and he have been friends for years. Yeah, it's, it's more like he's almost like, I guess you could say like family. <laughs> yeah. hey, so you, you know, you spoke about your son owning horses. And let's go back to March 18th of 2013. Okay. Was that Smart Tory? You're on a horse for your son. Uh, called yeah. Smart Tory. Smart Tory. Yeah. And it's the ninth race at Parks, and you win the race, and it's your 5200th career victory. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, Keith Jones, the announcer, said, because he knows me quite well because I've been around him, I told him this, this will probably be my last um, ride, Keith, you know, if I win this race. I want to go out a winner. 5200 will be a nice number to pack it in on. But he says, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. So he announced that day, he says, and this is fifty. This is winner number 5,200 for Anthony Black, and you just may have seen his last performance. He said, and, he, and he stressed the words may have. <laughs> and so, how many races since then have you ridden? I've only ridden, like, uh, I don't know, not a lot. But I won another 11 since then. And it was a horse called Winning Image that Mike Arrow came and got me to ride. He said, come on, Tone, you, you, you stay in fit. You like getting on horses. This filly can win some races. You know, she's a good filly. This is another example of a filly I got lucky to ride. And I won, a, I think I won a four or five races on her. And they were all stakes. I, I, I have Winning. a feeling that somewhere down the line when they're ready to turn the lights out at Philadelphia Park or at Parks or whatever they're going to call it by then, yeah. the, Sherry Harrington's going to be trotting up up beside you to get you off the racetrack so they can close the joint down. <laughs> I kid with Sherry every morning. She, I even say, hey, Sherry, watch me and tell me how I can improve. And then when That's my back, buddy. Say hello to her for me. Oh, I definitely will. I see her every morning. Good outrider. Her and I joke around every morning, and she'll always say, well, keep your hands down, son. You know, that's how you can improve. I say, all right, Cher, I'll try to do it just for you. I'm going to see her tomorrow and tell tell her I was talking to you. Okay, great. And I'm going to let you go. It has been, as always, a you know, I was looking up stuff, and the last time... I interviewed you on the radio was with JJ back when we were doing the TV show in the bowels of Atlantic City Racecourse back in 1992. So it's been a, too, lo- too long before between shows, and we'd like to get you on more often if we could. Well, it would be my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And you know what? Any time of year, it's great to talk about horse racing. But we just went through a really exciting uh, group of races with Breeder Cup and at Breeder's Cup, and it's even more exciting to talk about it right now. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. And call me. Feel free to call me anytime, Les. I will. And, again, I thank you for being such a great ambassador for the sport, too. You've done so much for us. Uh, you got to love it. you got to love it. I love it. It's a great sport. And that's for sure. Tony, again, thanks a lot. We're going to take a brief commercial break, and we'll be back after these messages. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired, and old friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever, or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize the surging Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around, so come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at The Stable, this fall, we're offering just that. 
We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. Welcome back. A great interview with Tony Black, one of my favorite jocks and uh, one of the best ambassadors of the sport. And right now, I've got one of my old, no, I can't call her my oldest friend, somebody that I've known a long, long time on the racetrack. Matter of fact, when the first year that I started training, Casey and Butch and Todd were uh, were sentenced to be behind me in our barn, and I think they bailed me out. Casey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Les. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice, and uh, we go back to 1984, believe it or not, uh, and those days at Atlantic City Racecourse, and I wanted to have you on because we had Tony Black on. He's an Atlantic City guy. And then you and Butch and Todd, you know, were at Atlantic City for a number of years uh, before you moved to Ocala. But, Casey, you're, you getting into racing is unusual. The way you got into the sport is unusual. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it was a little unusual. You know, my, our background was basically rodeoing. And uh, we were contestants, my husband and I was, and also my son. And uh, so my husband was a blacksmith, and he started showing. He went to the racetrack, and then that got me interested in, of course, going with him as a family. I started out ponying at the racetrack, so I enjoyed that. I guess just one thing led to the other, the competitiveness of uh, being able to train something like that and win a race, and it, it intrigued me. and. One one situation led to another. Well, you mentioned that you both were rodeo people, and but you came from an area that doesn't normally have a lot of rodeo people. This is true, very true. Uh, my husband went took ranch management course at Texas Christian out in Fort Worth, Texas, and. Uh, through over the years that I got interested in running barrels or rodeoing, and he ran, rode bucking horses, uh, we traveled a lot. And then we ended up basically in Florida. Uh, did that down there, Florida down there, was more conducive to our lifestyle. So I guess that's how we ended up in Florida. So let's talk about the transition from rodeo to racing. That's a good question. I, I've had a lot of people in the racetrack world ask me that over the years. And it took me a while to try to figure out. I think it's the competitiveness, uh, the want to win, the thrill of winning. Uh, you know, it's just like winning in a, any sport. But uh, as retired as I am, I can still relive the feeling of, a win uh, on the racetrack. There's just, it's the most beautiful natural high in the world. Well, so I guess that's, hopefully it was Todd's not listening because he probably thinks the moment that you gave birth to him should be in that category. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but, you know what? Let, let's just take a step back. Let's talk about family and Todd and, you know, stuff like that. You, you have, Todd's your son, and tell us a little bit about Todd. Well, uh, you can brag on him a uh, little bit. Okay, I, I am going to brag about him. Uh, first of all, I think he's one of the best athletes I've ever seen because I watched him play high school and college ball on one leg. For now, he played college years. football for Cornell, right? Yes, he did. He played for Cornell, and uh, he was always interested somewhat in rodeo, but he. His main goal was football. He lived and breathed football, and that was his choice, and, and my husband and I backed him wholeheartedly. Then uh, he graduated, corn, uh, graduated high school. He graduated from Okeechobee, Florida High School, and went on to Cornell. He was MVP at, in uh, high school, and, and then, of course, like, like we said, he played football. After, in his senior year of college, he did his final, uh, he took up business marketing, and then he took up his uh, final semester in Churchill and did his final paper on uh, racetrack management. 
So from there, he went, <laughs> he had many, many positions. He he uh, he worked for Mr. Kraft in the racing office at Oak Lawn and Axor Bend. Uh, Tampa Bay Downs, he was the marketing director and, and, uh, and always had some competitive, always had a lot of competitiveness in him. And, uh, after yeah, that, I wonder he, where he gets that from, Casey. <laughs> yeah, and then he, he, uh, he trained some. He, he, one year he went out on his own and trained some. Uh, when uh, Texas first origi- uh, originated with uh, racing, he c- took a string out. We sent him out there with a string of horses. He did very well. He did very well. And uh, I think... Uh, he has to be probably one of my biggest accomplishments I've ever did. <laughs> he did a good job. He's a good man. Well, well thank you. Know, you. Talking I'm, about so... Texas racing, you know, and you, you don't normally brag about yourself, but you won the first stake at Lone Star, didn't you? I did. It was a, the very first race they made it a, uh, a Texas spread uh, stake race. And I had the... Uh, Great pleasure of training for Mr. Henry White, who's from Kentucky that passed away, and Mr. Hugh Fitzsimmons. And they, I had a horse by called by the name of I.R. Sharp, and uh, he was meant to be, he bred very nicely, and he was meant to be a real good horse. He had some issues, and uh, my husband tried to, uh, did figure this out with shoeing uh, situations, but um, we did. That was, I. Uh, a uh, a great win and and uh, I I never thought I could uh, make some two owners that happy and they were extremely extremely happy and appreciative I'll never forget that day. Yeah, one of the advantages of having Butch, who still after all these years is my favorite blacksmith because first of all he would tell me how wrong I was about everything in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would make you laugh about it. So, uh, but but he was a very talented farrier uh, that understood the body of a horse. And yeah, yes, yes. Cor- cor- he, he, correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but with his feel for, for the anatomy of the horse, and then your hands when you got on a horse, did that, especially when you had so many young horses, did that make a difference in getting them to the races or getting them sold? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, as I got older and I couldn't get on anymore, I'd always ask the riders, what do you feel? It doesn't make any difference what I see. What do you feel? And if you could you exactly. could feel, you could feel behind, you could feel the front. And um, so that absolutely was a big advantage. And then having him there, he he uh, he, he did, he came up underneath a uh, Smith from Ireland, Seamus Brady, and he apprenticed for him for four years. And uh, so he learned a lot, and we're very thankful for that, too. It was very fortunate to be able to come up underneath Seamus. When, when, he, was, when he was shooing for me, one of the things, and I, to this day, I, I still use it, he, he said, watch your horse in the stall and what he's doing with his bedding. And I can't tell you how many times... I've been able to catch a horse that was starting to go bad behind that was pushing back their bedding. And Butch pointed that out to me for the first time. He was the first person to bring that to me. And to this day, I think his understanding of what the horse is doing in a stall and how the horse is standing underneath himself is spot on and so important. Absolutely. You know, you know, people would say to you, well, I wish they could talk. They do talk if you spend enough time around them and watch. And uh, that's that's absolutely true. And a good friend of mine by the name of Pat Bosley taught me that and taught Butch that. And uh, she was and Pat was very, very instrumental in us getting a real good, strong start at Atlantic City Racetrack, too. I'll never forget that or I never want her to think that I never appreciated that because I surely, surely do. No, Pat. Pat's a good woman, and uh, you know what? One of those horse people that people don't realize how good she is because she's not out there in the public like some other people. But she's about exactly. as good underneath the horse as you can be, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, back then it was it was different. You know, there were, you didn't have two hundred head in training. You didn't have uh, 
150 in training. You know, you had a stable and you try to own, you had to own some of them to, to, you know, to make it and everything. And, and, uh, people, there was more families involved back then too, more families involved and you spent more time in the barn. You know, it just changed. I'm not saying that it's not, didn't change for the, for the better at all, but it's, it's just flat changed. Now, You've been, and Tony has been riding for 50 years. You've been training for 40 years approximately. Uh, and it has changed, but you've, you've maintained a family, family thing all these years, right? Because obviously yeah. you, you got tied yeah. through school. And I, I remember when we were at Atlantic City, anything that was too heavy for me to pick up, Todd was more than happy to do it for me. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, just, just a good person and well well broke, as they say. Uh, but now, <laughs> well, pretty- now there's another generation that you're taking care Correct. of. Correct. That's right. <laughs> yes, so, I tell me a little bit about what's going on, on on the farm. Well, I, I had one son, and he ended up marrying a wonderful woman, a, a Texas girl, and he ended up having five children. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, they all chose different careers, but uh, quite a few of them are, are, one is my uh, oldest granddaughter, it lives in Austin. My oldest grandson is in Colorado. I have one grandson living with me, and I had a, a, Todd had a set of twins. She's married to a professional steer wrestler, and her brother is a uh, actor and a producer. (laughs) So they, they just moved from California to Tulsa. So, but so you get all grand- shapes and all sizes. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a bit, it's been very interesting and well rounded. But basically, they come back to their roots. Uh, that you know, they uh, we we right at the present. Uh, Butch and I are living in, in uh, Texas and uh, on a small ranch, and uh, they come back to the roots. They really do. And and you're taking care of some of Tyler's horses with them. Am I correct? Yes, yes. Tyler, Tyler's a professional uh, team roper, and uh, so I, I get up at, uh, in the barn at six o'clock every morning. I guess some things you just can't change, and uh, not that I would want to, but uh, I enjoy taking care of his rope horses. That's a challenge too, you know. They they are ride, rode hard, and and uh, so I enjoy feeding them and working on their legs and. We have, uh, I'm in partnership with a friend of mine, Beth Deal, and we do uh, thoroughbred yearlings, uh, prep thoroughbred yearlings. And uh, T- Tell us a little bit about your yearling operation. Well, right now it's not, I can't say it's very large, but we're, I, some of my old friends and owners came back into uh, to the uh, grind with us and uh, made some phone calls and said, you want to have some fun again? So uh we uh right now we have some like i said some two texas breads uh and um we're just enjoying it and and uh i have the mares here and we do the full prepping and uh, take them up to sale and but my my partner beth sells sells them under inside move and uh fort worth i'm sorry i'm dallas and uh so we're, we're expanding that and uh it's it's going well but we won't see you on any two-year-olds coming up. No. <laughs> okay. No. no for people that don't know, for a while there, you guys, <laughs> you guys were turning out a lot of two good two-year-olds. Yeah, we did. We enjoyed it. We, you know, a good friend of well, with how we got started, in that was our, of course, our background is quarter horse, and we were breaking quarter horse colts for years, and Butch was in Gulfstream shoeing, and a good friend of ours by the name of John Thomas. Uh, wanted some thoroughbreds broke. And I said, I don't want to break a thoroughbred. He said, I want them broke to death. I want them broke where you could ride them anywhere. And I said, send them on. And basically, John was, Thomas was the one that got me started in breaking thoroughbreds. Talk to me about that philosophy, because you, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, things have changed. But uh, it, it's interesting. We just got a couple of horses in that uh, Niall and Stephanie Brennan broke. And they are two of the best broke horses I've ever been around. And they just do exactly what you were saying. They they break them so that they, they can go anywhere. 
Tell us a little bit about your system and what you guys did. Well, you know, it, it, it's really hard when you have a, a large number. I mean, we would uh, we would set their heads, uh, lunge them a lot, drive them. We believed in driving, especially the bad ones. If any other ones went on the rear up or something, we'd stay longer in the round pens. We broke in the round pens. Again, I repeat myself, we drove a lot of babies and uh, we were, I was pretty particular on who we hired uh, to, you, you look for somebody that's basically other than an exercise rider that will help you break a baby the right way. They go, they don't, they don't ever go to the racetrack till you can ride them around on the farm, uh, in and out of the paddocks, in and out of the round pen, and uh, where, you, where they're in control, where they have a good stop, a good back, good woe. And uh, some broke out easy, and and some <laughs> some didn't. Some we had to take a lot of time with, but patience was a virtue, and and uh, consistency counted also. And I was one of the old ones that uh, the horse they have to be ridden every day. My babies got ridden every day. They got groomed every day. Uh, you know, they learned uh, you know, some of the right when you send them to the racetrack, they, the grooms uh, didn't would appreciate a horse standing on the wall where he could pick up his feet and everything. And so we did the whole nine yards, but I didn't know any other way. That's the only way I knew. Yeah. And, and that's part of why you've been successful in, in the business for so long is you didn't know the shortcuts. No, no. I, I could watch. I, I watch other people take the shortcuts. And I, I often told Todd, I said, if you watch some people, you learn what not to do. Don't do that. So, yeah. Do, do you miss being at the racetrack? Yes, there's there's times that, that I, I, I do miss it. Um, I miss the camaraderie. Um, I miss the, the fun. You have to have a good sense of humor when you're at the racetrack. Uh, and uh, this is true. Uh, the work never bothered me. I've, I've always enjoyed working. I, I, I have to say that. But uh, uh, and it's not always glory. You got to be strong enough to withstand. Why did I lose that race? Or what did he back up for? Or what in the world is he doing? But again, uh, there. When you have one in that race and he gets to the wire first, there's just nothing like. A win. It's just the most. I used to tell everybody it's the most natural high a person could ever feel. It just puts you on cloud nine. It, it does, and it it carries you all the way to the next race. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. It gets your pump, and then the next race. That's a whole different going. story, right? Exactly. You know, and you. But you got to instead of pouting, instead of getting mad, you have to say, did I do something wrong? Is something bothering them? You know, did I miss something? What, what's he telling me? What is she telling me? You know, just take time to don't pout. Just try to figure out how to change it. I, I think you and Butch both were very introspective when I knew you at the track. You know, something went wrong. You took a step back and, and you looked at it and tried to figure it out rather than getting yeah, and we were, you know, we were around some folks that could throw their hat down pretty quick. Uh, but you, you guys always seem to take a step back and try and analyze what was going on. Is that a rodeo thing or? Yeah, I, I where, think where it's a carryover. Yeah, I, I, I think it's carryover from that. I mean, you know, we started, I started on the bottom. I mean, I didn't have all stake horses and, and uh, whatever my owners brought me, you know, I had to put them in the right hole and in the right position to win. And and if they needed a little help or different corrective shoeing or different fever, you had to you had to try to figure out. You had to try to improve on it. And like I say, we didn't start with the very top, so we had whatever we had, we had to make it work. And, and your record, you know, your record was very impressive. You know, you won sixteen percent of your starts in a time when. You were running horses every week. You know, you couldn't you couldn't hold them out to get the stats in those days. So 16 percent right. in those days was a tremendous number. And, and you had a good number of stake horses. Like you said, very few were regally bred. Yeah, right. You, right. you, you know, you, you worked with them and got them there. Uh, the, and that hands on approach that you had. I, I When we talked the other day, I hear that the. It's kind of like the same thing with Tyler's horses. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you have to enjoy that. But, and that's what got to me towards the end of, as we were growing, I, I couldn't let go of the hands-on approach. And it was just so many horses I could put my hands on during the day. And I, I, maybe that's a fault of my own where I didn't know how to adjust to that. And, um, uh, I, sometimes I look back and say, you know, you know, maybe you should have adjusted more, but I, I don't know if I could have or not. I don't know. You, you know, when you have horses, a lot of it's kind of like parenting. And I couldn't imagine you having Todd and not being interested in him for a day or two. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and your horses are the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? And, and so, yeah, had, you know, when you go to I bed at a, night and you know that you shorted your kid, you feel pretty lousy. You, you go to bed at night and you feel like you shorted exactly. your horses. You feel the same kind of lousy. Exactly. It is. It, it, if you don't put your heart into it, you know, that old saying, you have to leave your work at your, your thing at work. That's bull because. <laughs> Not in the horse business, my friend. About it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't turn that off. You don't, you don't turn that off at all. Yeah. If a person does, I, I couldn't figure out how they did it. Now, are you planning to come down to Ocala at all? Uh, you never know. You know, I, I miss Todd and Cindy a whole bunch. And, of course, that warm weather sometimes really looks good. <laughs> we're, we're getting close to the, the chasing weather. You know, when it gets cold, yeah. it chases you from where you're at. Uh, exactly. Well, if you are, yeah. you know, we're, we're up in Ocala a lot. We'd love to see you guys. Uh, oh, I'd love to. Send my regards to Butch. Uh, oh, I tell him I sure he's, 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 he's still my... A number one blacksmith. Thank you. Uh, and, I'll tell uh, that. Yeah. It, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, oh. thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Les, and thank you very much for being part of my life. Thank you so much. The same here. Take uh, care now. Okay, bud. Bye-bye. And that's it for this edition of Equisport Radio News. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks with a couple of very, very special Kentucky guests. Oh.